On episode 258 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn about training mistakes, pressure points, and footwork intensity with Jorge Capistani. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey there, this is Mirban. Welcome to another episode of the show. Really great to have you here listening. I uh, hope you're doing well. I actually uh, have not been playing as much tennis lately because I suffered from a little bout of COVID. Uh, I've been traveling a bit lately here and there, and unfortunately, I did pick it up. But fortunately for me, the symptoms were pretty mild, so definitely really grateful for that. But definitely also, I've really missed playing tennis. i uh, just been a little bit too tired to do so, obviously, but uh, looking forward to getting back on track and getting my fitness levels back as well. But today, we have a really insightful session with Coach Jorge Capistani. I've had him on my podcast before as well as my summits. And to give you some background on him, if you don't already know, he's only one of 12 people worldwide that has earned the distinction of Master Professional with the USPTA and International Master Professional with the PTR. He is a six-time Michigan Pro of the Year and two-time Midwest Pro of the Year and was also named National Pro of the Year by both USPTA and PTR. So it really doesn't get much better than that in terms of coaching resumes. And Jorge is also a great guy as well. And today you're going to hear about the biggest mistakes that club level players make when trying to develop their game, why you shouldn't be addicted to to technique if you want to win more matches, the proper balance between match play and practice, why closing out a tennis match is much more difficult than winning in other sports, the concept of pressure points and how to train them, how to have intense footwork and a relaxed upper body during matches, and much more. And today's session is from a special VIP session that I had with Jorge and some Tennis Files members. And so I think that you'll really gain a lot from it. You know, Jorge is just a wealth of knowledge and I always really learn a lot when he comes on to uh, the show or on the, the summit. So really hope that you enjoy it. So without further ado, here is Jorge Capistani. Jorge, like, what are the biggest mistakes do you think that club level uh, club level tennis players make when they're trying to develop their game? You know, they're trying to reach their maximum potential, um, but maybe they're making a couple of these mistakes that kind of hinder them from doing that. Yeah, um, I think of a couple that come to mind right away is an addiction to technique. I know a lot of people are trying to acquire prettier and prettier strokes and they lose to somebody or they'll look at someone else's strokes and say, oh man, that that looks good. So they kind of erroneously equate pretty looking strokes with being a better player. And those aren't necessarily. So that's a big one. I mean, as a club pro for, I don't know how many years, close close to 40 now, um, I found that I had a lot of adults do this, you know, and they keep, 
searching for the better looking server? Can you fix my forehand? And um, I use this phrase when I teach called the range of acceptability. It's not unique to me. I can't remember who I got it from because I've been using it for decades. But obviously, if you look at the top 10 forehands on the planet, either on the male side or female side, there's a ton of similarities and there's a ton of slightly different things you see. You know, some some people break the plane. You can see the racket on the other side of the body. Some people don't. Some people have what's called ATP where they really kind of, you know, almost like a whiplash. Some people don't. So I learned a long time ago that you have, my job as a coach is to help explain to whoever I'm working with Chris or Neil or Jamie and saying, okay, guys, this is good enough. This forehand you have, it's everything's in the range of acceptability. So now it's time to move off technique and then phase two begins and phase two for me is strategy. You know, how, how, not so much how to hit it, but like, where do you hit it? So one of the things I've had in my office is a quote that I, if you come in there, you'll see it. It says how you hit the ball matters, where you hit the ball matters more. So if you're a beginner, 3.0 and under kind of a newish player, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of technique, but once you get to that three, five level, uh, it's, you know, it's time to move on. And obviously if you have a glaring weakness, a total grip screw up or a swing path is totally wrong, then we can address that. But that's number one. And then the other affliction I see, I'm going to say this one uh, affects juniors more than adults, but it's a, an imbalance in their regimen, their practice regimen. So at my club right now, I probably have 300 juniors in the program. Probably 200 of them are high school kids who are playing in, you know, once a year during a season. And probably out of that 200 high schoolers, I'll, I'll throw middle schoolers in there as well. Probably 150 or more don't play a match like ever. Like we'll see you next spring and we'll play again. So they take lessons, they take privates, they take more lessons, they take more group lessons and more semi-privates. And, and they just, they think they're doing themselves a favor but they're not doing the match play practice match play would be the easiest thing to do. Cause at least there's some pressure I'm playing Neil. I don't want to lose. Right. So, but the tournament uh, pressure is even more important. And I'm not kidding with and all my coaching friends say the same thing. There's a, there's an epidemic of what I call serial drillers. They just drill and drill and drill and drill. And you never play. This is, I'm not even kidding when I say it's three quarters of the kids in my program. Uh, I know why they're there. None of them want to go pro. They, they get it. But they want to play high school tennis. That's the big thing in my area. So they'll train year-round. I got tons of kids training year-round. And what happens is because they don't want to put it on the line for whatever reason, uh, they think they're doing themselves. So I'm just going to do another private. I'm going to do two privates a week this year. I'm going to do three drills. I'm going to be there every day. Um, but I liken a match to like a quiz. So I work at Hope College, right? And uh, if I were to go into a class at Hope College and the professor said to me, especially if I was 18, said to me, listen, you guys are adults now. I'm not going to give you a quiz. I'm not going to, I want you just to show up and there'll be a final. Okay. But just make sure you come. You might think, wow, that's a great class. No quizzes, no pop quizzes, no exams, even just the final. So, uh, until the very last day, 
when I go in there, okay, it's finals day. I've been coming pretty regularly. Uh, and I look at the first answer on the final, 100% of my grade rise on this, and I don't know the answer. And then I'm like, hmm. So then I go to the second question, and I don't know that answer. And then I go to the third, I'm like, I'm not sure. So in that example, it's dawning on me right then and there, I'm, I'm going to fail this class. What I should have been doing is taking these quizzes along the way, getting feedback, saying, hey, Jorge, you suck at this class, and you got to get some help. Um, that's what a match is. Practice matches and tournament matches for kids are just feedback so they can go say, okay, I just did another test and I, the results came back and my server is a little shaky and my backhand's horrible. Why on earth would you want to learn that during tryout week? Or if you're a state, you know, if you're an adult player, they, they'll do it during, you know, when they go out for their club teams or their league teams or they're going to the districts or the sectionals or the nationals. Um, so that's, those are the two big ones, addiction to technique and just being completely out of whack when you're in your regiment. You know, you don't, you know, tennis has, I did not invent these, but tennis, you train your fitness. So your movement, you train your technique for sure. You train your strategy and you train your mental. And uh, a lot of people, they don't want to do that. You go up to your average 17 year old high school boy and say, let's work on the mental skills today. And they'll look at you like, are you crazy? I, I got to have a better, I didn't lose because of that. I, I lost because I don't have a forehand like Adam over there. I want one of those. And they're, they're chasing the shiny optic. So those are the two things I, I find are the most common in my experience. Awesome. Or I appreciate that. A lot of great information there that I hope you all find useful. You know, I'll just let you all um, ask away and then, you know, I'll, I'll kind of sit back and have some background, you know, some questions of, of my own later on if, if we need me to jump in. But uh, does anyone have any either follow-up questions to what Jorge had? Okay. Uh, I didn't see who was first. Last time I picked Jamie to be first, so this time I'll pick Christopher, but you'll definitely make it in there, Jamie. <laughs> well, um, can you hear me? Yes. Hey, Coach, good to have you on the call. That's got a quick follow-up from what you were just saying. I did have a question actually coming into this, which kind of went with your topic over here of what would you suggest is the proper balance between match play and practice. Right. Uh, but to add to that, what do you attribute people or kids not wanting to go into match play to? And is it something that we only see in tennis? Or is this across the board into other sports too for that age bracket? Great question. I'll, let me try to answer. I think the reason it happens mostly with kids in my orbit is because they don't have built-in match play like adults. Pretty much every adult that's at my club is playing. That's what they do. They they either have permanent court times with the guy every Tuesday, me and my buddies play at six. Okay. And what do they think they do? They play matches. They don't drill amongst themselves. So it's built in. And the other faction at my club is that our adults are league players, like USDA league players. And they have a schedule. I mean, they, they got matches scheduled for them throughout the whole year. I don't have internal leagues, uh, but even if I did, that's kind of match play. So on the adult side, it's kind of built for you. Um, on the tennis side, it's not, you know. So let me use this example of T-ball, Okay. When my daughter was about seven or eight years old, my wife and I both coached tennis. So we hoped she would do tennis, but we weren't going to ram it down her throat. So I did the, the sports buffet. I put my seven-year-old and we had her try volleyball. We had her try tennis. We had her try soccer. 
and karate and t-ball. And we just was going to let her sample everything and decide which ones she liked the most. Uh, so what she decided after trying them all was that tennis and volleyball were her two favorite. Let me show you some. This, uh, this little girl's being a culprit. She's like scratching at the back door over there. This is Flora. So, but when we signed her up for volleyball or for soccer, here's what happened. We showed up. They said, okay, here's when you practice. Here's when you play. I mean, it was expected you were going to play. And I remember in T-ball in particular, they, I, we signed her up and they said, okay, the first practice is Thursday. We play our first game on Saturday. I go, they're going to play a game? Like my daughter doesn't even know how to hit a ball. And if she does, I don't know. She knows to run to first base. So guess what I did? That Saturday and Friday, we played catch and we, you know, I threw her some balls and she did all that kind of stuff. But the point is, in almost every other junior sport, you sign up for soccer, or whatever, and you get two things. Here's the practices. Here's the games. Okay. In junior tennis, when you go to a club, here's what our classes are. When do we play? Maybe they have it. Maybe they don't. You can go look up a USTA tournament, but not right away because you you got to, you know, you have to learn first. So that would be uh, one of the problems. Okay. And then the other problem is that I think juniors in particular, so I've been teaching for 40 years. So I, I reckon back to like 35 years ago, if I would have a class with a dozen 10-year-old kids, literally all 12 out of 12, if I said, pick up a ball and throw it that way, 12 out of 12 of them would have picked up a ball and done this and done that. If I do that today, three of them will turn sideways and throw properly. The other ones will sling it, will shot put it. They're not getting basic running, catching, throwing and stuff with, that I did with my parent or my kid or my friends. That's all we did. So they're really probably amazing in computer games. So it's a, a definite, I coined this phrase, that I, I don't mean it to be insulting, but I think it's accurate, that a lot of these little eight, nine-year-olds that are playing, they're athletically illiterate. They don't know how to run and catch and, and, and skip. So we spend a lot of our time in our tennis class just learning those kind of skills. So I think the, the sport itself of tennis is a, one of the hassles is when you're going to a club, you know, you have a child, okay, my kid wants to play tennis, I'm going to try it. There's not always a follow-up program because the pro that that club goes, well, eight-year-old can't play tennis. You know, they can't serve and rally. So don't give them anything. But they mistake that, well, there could still be a competition, right? It could be a skills competition. It could be a rally along the ground competition just to get them in the idea that, yeah, in tennis, you practice and you compete. So first answer is I think a lot of it's inherent. Secondly, because those kids are athletic, I say way more now than in the past. Ego is like, I don't want to test myself. I don't want to put it on the line and possibly lose. Uh, that's how we did, man. It, back in my day when I was a if we drilled, it wasn't 30 minutes where all of us were like, let us play. Let's, let's play singles, let's play doubles. We wanted to play immediately. Now at my summer academy, they'll drill. And I say, okay, let's pause. Let me have Neil and Chris. We're going to go over here. I want you to play a set. Half the time, they're oh, can we just play doubles? You know, so there's something going on there that's kind of a bummer. I, I do think tennis struggles with it more than other sports. I don't coach other sports you know, at least not in mass, but I think because those other sports, right. When, you know, 
if you go to soccer and you want to start your little eight-year-old in soccer, I guarantee you you're going to get a practice and a game time. Uh, the games are going to be ugly. You know, they're going to be like a little pile of kids just running around all next to each other. But they're going to play. And no, no one, if, if you sign up for T-ball and you, they gave you a paper, here's the 17 times we practice. We're never going to play a game. A parent will go, what, what the hell do you mean? This isn't normal. But for tennis, they don't think twice about it. So that's kind of, I think, what we're facing. Adults, it's just way easier because it's built in. They're a little more mature, obviously. Uh, you know, some adults, don't, no one wants to lose, you know, but they don't tie it to their self-worth as much. So I think that's the difference between those two. I think another factor maybe, too, and give me your feedback on this, is that well, for major sports, tennis is completely an individual sport. Yep. Um, so it's all you, particularly if it's singles. Um, yeah. You're granted football, baseball, whatever. You do have your role to play, but you're part of the team. Yeah, that, that's huge, too, because I have this you, – you got me thinking of this document that I have um, called Why Tennis is the Toughest Sport, and it's I list 10 things and 10 rationales, right? And when people hear me say that, they kind of go, what? Tennis isn't the toughest sport, you know? Boxing is the toughest sport, like, because they're thinking physical stuff. But when you look at the, the software, not so much the hardware, the software, one sport, so in a sense it's like from 80 feet away. Um, it is um, no timeouts. Think, imagine, you know, baseball with no timeouts or basketball. There's no timeout. Uh, no substitutions. So you're a 10-year-old child. You're playing your first tournament. You just double faulted literally four times in a row. You can't get the point going. No one can talk to you. No one can help you. No one can coach you. And no one can substitute you in and say, come on out for a minute and let Billy play. I mean, it's murder. So it's really, really tough. There's no time clock. So I've seen, you know, 10-year-old people play matches over four hours long. Um, I've seen it in hot. I've seen it in cold. I've seen it in wind. So changing conditions. There's all these weird things that make tennis uniquely difficult. Um, and then you think about that. Oh, the biggest one is the line calls, right? So I have parents, lots of them are new. And I think us tennis players just take for granted the idea that, you know, it's a gentleman's sport and I'm going to call the lines fairly and trust that you'll do the same thing. That's a huge responsibility that's given to the players that no other sport does. Right. So my analogy there is you go to a middle school basketball game and you play basketball. Right. And you say, OK, guys, here's the deal. We're not going to have referees. You're going to call your own fouls. That's basically what we do in tennis. We call our own fouls. Can you imagine a, a, a middle school team playing another middle school team with hundreds of parents, how that would go? It would be a, a riot within a half hour. I mean, people freaking out. Same thing in high school. Or in baseball, okay, we're playing a baseball game, this high school versus this high school. Listen, honor system, the batter, the guy who's batting, when you throw it to Jorge who's batting, Jorge will decide if that's a ball or a strike. And I call four balls, even though there's strikes, boom, fist fight, you know, but we will give that responsibility to tennis players, even 10 year old tennis players and wonder why they freak out or wonder like, you know, this kid hit the ball in the middle of the court and the kid called it out <coughs> blatant cheating like that. Couldn't go on in any other sport, but it could in ours. So uh, I think these are all little things that people don't think about us. Tennis players just kind of take it for granted. Like, yeah. But when you look at it through that prism, 
I'd love to see a, <laughs> an NBA game where they call their own fouls. Let's just say, hey, go ahead and do it, guys. That would, <clears throat> I imagine that would be like <laughs> worth watching. It would be a unbelievably, they'd be so mad and, and it'd be a fight because all that fairness and stuff comes externally and it's built into pretty much every sport. And our sport is given over to the players. And, you know, people are human. So you can't bank on the fact that they're going to be great. You can almost bank on the fact that you're going to run into your lifetime, but, you know, 10% of the people you play are going to be just maniacs that unethical, they cheat, they gamesmanship, all kinds of craziness. But I think those are, I love talking about that because I always get people riled up when I say a phrase like tennis is the world's toughest sport. Let me tell you why. And they're like, no way, because they keep thinking like football or something that's physically tough. And I'm like, by the way, if you ever watch, <laughs> like, remember these, Novak played Rafa years ago at the, at the Australian Open. It's one of those epic matches. And I've seen this happen two or three more times. So they play this five and a half hour match. And during the ceremonies, they're both just doubled over. Okay. Like they bring them chairs. They brought them freaking chairs to sit in. And I go, oh my God. So the, the, the sprinting and the stopping, all the you know, world-class athletes are amazing. They all are, right? Football players, basketball players. But tennis players, the running and the stopping and the running and the stopping, um, and that those are all explosive, you know, like 700 bursts of energy in a tennis match. That's just what a regular two out of three. So on that day, probably Rafa and Novak had like 300 uh, or 3,000 times where they changed direction and sprinted you know, squealing on hard courts, going this way. And people just go, yeah, that's, that's not a tough sport. <laughs> and I'm thinking, eh, that's crazy. Love that. Thanks, Jorge. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So let's go with uh, with Jamie then. I know you had a question as well. Yeah, I was going to say both of the two, I guess, big issues you mentioned really hit me. So I'm 35. I was put in lessons when I was eight, spent 10 years in, in ineffective junior tennis. Eight of those years, at least, were spent at my current club, Germantown Cricket Club, which is a historic landmark club. But I would actually say for me, the experience was a little bit different than what you're saying. I felt like no one would put me in matches. Mm. And year after year after year, I w- all I wanted was to make my private school JV team. All I wanted. And yep. year after year, I was on third team in the woods. <laughs> learning nothing. And I was like, we're a historic club. What the heck is going wrong? And my mom said, 
well, you're probably not doing the other things the other girls are doing. I was like, what things? Nobody told me there were other things. I don't know. Right. And so took 10 years off, came back in 2016. For the past five years, I've steadily built up my technique, which is fine. I'm not losing matches because of my technique. I'm losing matches because I still haven't learned how to compete. And in particular, and I figured this out over the weekend, I blow leads all the time. Game after game, set after set, match after match, I and I can't hold on to it. And I haven't figured out what I'm missing to close that loop. Well, I have an idea because I've seen this, that inability to close, not being a good front runner is a pretty common thing, as you can imagine. A lot of people feel that way about themselves. I'm going to be looking over here because I want to see if I can pull up something. But in the meantime, let me tell you what, what I think usually, what I found more often than not uh, is this. So it sounds like you didn't get a chance to compete you know, that much in juniors. Okay. And then you came back and now you're starting to compete, but think of competition. This is how I explain it to my players and adults. Um, I got you like a little figurine, Jamie. And every time I match, it's like I dunk you in this liquid and, and I lift you back out. And there's a little outer coating of toughness. Okay. I let it dry. And then I dunk you in again a week later and you build up a little callus and you're like, okay, I got a little bit more experience. And now imagine you've been dunked in 10 times. Okay. So you're starting to get a little tough on the outside, but Mayor Bond has dunked in 2,670 times because that's how many matches he's competed from juniors to USDA and whatnot. Well, when you put those two people on the court, assuming their strokes are 100% even, there's just an undeniable benefit or um, they, uh, benefit or advantage that that person with the experience will have. So there is no match. You know, I have these two phases. Ball count matters. So in other words, if I'm teaching and it's a fancy drill, that's good. But if, if you're not hitting, you know, hundreds of forehands and someone else is hitting hundreds of forehands, ball count matters. You, you know, I have a drills website that is pretty well known in the whole world, but some drills are better than others and some training is better than others. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is tennis has this diabolical scoring system. Uh, Dr. Alan Fox uh, wrote this book, uh, Winning the Mental Game. I recommend it highly. But basically, here's what he says. Uh, the, the way tennis is scored is so funky because the points aren't cumulative, right? In almost every other sport, a point goes up on the board, you score a touchdown, it stays on the board. Okay, you score two points, a three-pointer in basketball, it stays. There's none of this going backwards crap. In tennis, they're not cumulative. I could be playing Marabond, and then all of a sudden I'm up. All of a sudden it's 5-5. Five, five. We've been at it for an hour, really competitive match. And then it's 6-6. Six, six. Now we're in a tiebreaker, 3-3. Three, three. And we both know that in the next couple of minutes, one of us is going to gain half this match, and the other one is basically going to go back to zero. Uh, it's like getting your whole – and that's weird. So – Imagine, I'm sure there's basketball games on tonight, NBA, and they had a, a different scoring system where they said, okay, you play, let's do a timeout. Okay, guys, it's uh, the third quarter. The game is 72 to 68. Here's how we're going to finish the game. We're going to take off the clock, and you're going to play up to 80. 
Whoever wins, wins the game. Okay. That's what tennis does. So now what happens, the urgency is like through the roof, right? And you would see the team that's ahead, maybe not being able to close out choking. This team hits a three-pointer. Now they hit a three-pointer and like, eh, you know, in, in basketball, if you got a 20-point lead, you're going to win if you got a few seconds left, a few minutes left. In tennis, not. I always, this has happened to me. I've been on the receiving end and the dishing out end of this next example, just to give you an idea. So I'm up 5-0 in the third set. I've been up 5-0 in the third set. I've been down 5-0 in the third set. One time when I was up 5-0 in the third set, uh, I'm thinking, of course, it's over. I got this thing. I think I lost the first set 6-4. I won the second set 6-2, and I'm up 5-0. I mean, I'm ready to shake hands, basically. <laughs> but um, contrast this with ping pong, by the way. In ping pong, I'm playing you, and I have 20, and you have 9. You have basically 11 sudden death points facing you right now. Okay. You can't even make one mistake. You lose one point. It's over. Now let's compare that to five Oh lead in the third set for tennis. I'm up five Oh, you can make mistakes. You can make lots of mistakes. As long as you just win the game, you got one. So I got five, you got one. And right now I'm thinking, no problem. Five, one, I got this. And then we play a next game and I win points. You win points. You know, there's no sudden death for you. Um, and I went some more points, and all of a sudden, somehow you grabbed that game. All right, long fought game. I got five, you got two. Okay, you might have played 15, 20 points or not facing sudden death. Right. And now at five, two, I'm usually still okay emotionally, but I'm starting to say things in my head like, okay, come on, Jorge, let's freaking do this. Don't be an idiot here. Let's, let's finish this off. And then we start the next game and I win some points and you win some points and the game's going fine, but it's a long game and you win it. Five, three. What do you think the mindset is of this person right now? Healthy? No. <laughs> up five, three. Anybody would say, yeah, I'll take a five, three lead in the third set any day. But when you were, when it, when it was five, oh, and now it's five, three, even though I've got comfortable, I'm, I really still have a comfortable lead. My attitude is crap. Oh my God, this is crazy. So, and the, by the way, if it ever gets to four or five, I think I read an article on this. We'll play another game. I have five, you have four. I'm still ahead, right? Mathematically, if from zero to four, this guy loses more often than not, even though he has five to four because of his state of mind. He's so pissed and I can't believe it. How could I not? I always do this crap. I'm such a choker, you know, and they get really negative and that's kind of normal. So it's a really bizarre scoring system that's kind of diabolical. So it's really easy to make comebacks compared to how easy it is to make a comeback in tennis at 5-0 compared to ping pong, okay? Uh, and conversely, it's really difficult to finish someone off. You could be up 5-0, but you still got to finish people off. And if the games have been close, I could have got that 5-0 lead winning five really close games. So I think what I would say is, what I've learned is that there's, you got to play match point or match play, but I could, I call tennis points in two categories, regular points and pressure points. Okay. So what a pressure point is, is they happen the way I define it is near the end of the game when it's deuce or passed. Okay. And when the set is four, four or later. Okay. So if I played you and most people would agree to this, 
there's not a lot of pressure, you know, when it's one, one 15 all there's no, no, nobody's going to win here in the next minute or so. Okay. But when that game is 15, all love, love, it's no pressure. But as soon as like add out now, I know, okay, there's something on the line here and this play, it's only worth one on the scoreboard. I, I intellectually get it, but something's going on. I feel different when it's add out second serve than I do when it's low 15 second serve. So the scoreboard, even though they're all worth one point, emotionally, they're not, they kind of weigh differently. <laughs> so what I found is a lot of the people who I work with who couldn't close matches out, I started having them do this type of training where I would say, okay, so Jamie, today you're going to play Marathon, but here's the deal. I don't want you to play a regular match. Um, by the way, if you play regular match and let's, let's revisit what pressure is, 4-4 in the game and later, 4-4 in the set, or deuce or later. Okay, If you play normal set, Maribyrn and I would probably, in one hour's time, probably play well under 50% of those points would be not pressure. They'd be kind of like low 15, 30-30, stuff like that. So you don't really, even though you're playing and you're putting yourself in a pressure situation, which I love, uh, you can ramp that up. So what I do is I have my players play with a different game. So I would say, okay, Jamie, you're going to play Maribond, but here's how we're doing it today. Um, you're going to play for an hour. Uh, I want every game to start at 30-30. And I want every set to start at 4-4. And you're going to play endless. You might get through seven sets here. Who knows? So what happens is people, I explain that, and they kind of go, okay, yeah, I get it. And then all of a sudden, they go, let's try it. So they go out. And they double fault. Boom. Immediately with zero second break point in your face, break point. Like, oh, sheesh, now I want. So now they have to deal with that pressure point. And then maybe they choke the next one. Maybe they win and now it's deuce and they're into a battle. Or maybe they, I don't double fault the next, but Mayor Bond hits a win in return. So like literally in 10 seconds, I'm down four to five. Now I'm facing break. Now you're serving it out. So it's kind of corny, but if you manipulate the game, I love that game. I call it pressure scoring. And I have like, dozens of these another one that i recommend is you play you know chris and neil could be my students and i say okay guys go ahead and play here's how we're scoring it today the very first points of the game is worth 40 and then regular scoring after that so if i serve to chris and i double fall love 40 and then we play out regular scoring or if i ace them 40 love so what it does is it overemphasizes the importance of the first point, which is a weird, you know, every time you, you add value to a point, it creates pressure. Okay, don't, do, don't miss this point, Jorge. Uh, and then the third one I love <coughs> is called deuce and done. So I would play Maribon and I would serve and then he would serve. We're just gonna, and here's how it goes. It starts at deuce and I serve two points and only two points. If I win both points, I get the game. If he wins both points, the game. More often than not, we split the points and neither of us gets the game. So I hit an ace, I hit a double fault, nothing. Okay, now it's your zero, zero in the set. Now Mirabon goes. He hits an ace and then I hit a winner return, nothing. So it forces you to string points together, especially near the end of the game. So I think that, you know, I don't know what's in people's hearts. Some people just tell me, man, I have nerves. Like when I compete, I get so nervous. I feel like puking and I, I, I know it's just tennis, but my brain doesn't let me think that. So those could be some other issues, but you know, one of the things I have a whole mental toughness course that I did just recently, because I just know 
that's important to me. By the way, we'll put this here. If you go to Capistani Tennis or JorgeCapistani.com, just my name, that's my free website. And on that, there's an opt-in. You can put get a four-part mental toughness series. It's literally free. But it, the, here's the titles of the video. Fear of losing, uh, closing out opponents, nerves and choking, and your inner voice, which I don't tell people this too much in public, but those are my four demons when I, when I competed as a junior. I sucked at those four things specifically. Okay. Fear of losing, I just would get so nervous. I couldn't close out people very well. At least I thought I couldn't. My inner voice was horrible. It was an assassin. I would walk around. Sometimes my inner voice became an outer voice, and I'd make an ass of myself because I'm, you idiot, you cow, you know, all this stuff, and then nerves and choking. Uh, so it's free. It's really good. So JorgeCapistani.com, get it because anybody can do it. And it comes to you over three or four days, and it has a little follow-along quiz and stuff. Yes, Neil. Yeah, so we, we hear all about uh, during the summit the importance of being relaxed. Mm-hmm. When you hit the four, the serve, whatever, you want to be relaxed. <clears throat> so my challenge is, and I, and I don't think I'm alone in this, is that I can focus on a nice, relaxed arm movement, but I get so relaxed, my feet stop moving, don't mm-hmm. bend my knees, don't rotate my hips or anything like that. How do you remember or think to do everything and you just don't fall asleep up there and just start to wave your arm like a a flag in the wind or something like that? Yeah, I have an idea for that. Um, I kind of, you you have um, Jeff Greenwald on the summit, right? Isn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he has this thing called the two dials. Okay. And I use the two dial concept, but I'm different for something else. So I agree when I try to get a player, often what I'll do is if I see a player that's kind of too tight, usually they, you know, give it away, tension is really tight and they're, like they're pushing the ball and there's no fluidity. Um, I can bring the ball machine out and then I'll demonstrate. I'll be right next to them. So, okay, you know, here's my impression of you. And then I'll kind of like, eh, you know, do something like that. And then here's my impression of me and it's more fluid. And it looks to the eye, they can go, okay, I get it. And then they go in there and they can rem- pretty much replicate it. And then we say, okay, now let's go to rally and do the same thing. And then what happened, what you mentioned happens is their feet get relaxed and it's not intensity. So on the intensity dial, you think of two things. You think of your stroke or your swing speed. Okay. And you crank that up to super intense, like muscly and and hard versus just fluid and easy. And then is your body. So the magic is you don't take your footwork and your, tension and put them both over here towards you don't want to take them both over here towards super easy the key is to keep your footwork dial up so there's lots of touches in the ground but your stroke dial down it's this not that yeah so one little tip that's super old school but it it works i'll have my people the way i can measure it because they're like how do i know if my feet are still saying it's super easy i just count how many steps their feet hit the ground between strokes so I hit a ball and then every foot, by the way, so one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, I just count and there's data. Okay. Three old players average about seven or eight, four old players average about eight or nine, you know, five old players are over 10 steps between their shots. I hit it, boom, 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 boom. You know, those are all count. Each foot counts. 
So, and you can get an average if you do it pretty good. So I can measure that and say, okay, your footwork is down. You're getting like six. Let's get, pick your footwork up. And as soon as I do that, they start wailing on the ball. Okay. we got to separate these things. Keep your footwork yeah. up uh, and let's get the stroke. And the, the weird thing that's super old school, but works is <laughs> I have them say something, exhale. And I have them say the word smooth. I don't have them say smooth. I have them say smooth because if they're exhaling that way, their stroke tends to match it. So pop, 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 smooth, pop, 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 pop with the feet, smooth. And that's a corny way, but a pretty effective one that I've helped people kind of fix those dials. But I kind of agree. I remember as a junior being told the same thing. I was kind of like, you know, I didn't have a lot of fluidity. I had this crappy two-hander that I kind of jerked around and I kind of had a wrong grip and I kind of shoveled it. My, my elbow was high. It was really self-taught, horrible. Uh, and when I was getting taught to be more fluid, I had a hard time keeping my strokes fluid and easy. Doesn't mean soft hitting, just kind of fluid. Uh, and my footwork intensity, because I, I, they were connected. I cranked my feet up, my strokes went up with it. I had to kind of learn to separate those two, but that, that's super helpful to some of my students. And it was to me as well. You know, I, that, that's a real good point. It's thinking of it's two dials because the feet have to be moving a lot. Yeah. And at the same time, the stroke needs to be nice and relaxed because if you get too relaxed on the feet, then you just kind of sit there and you become almost like a spectator, right. uh, not moving after the ball, but you can hit it very nice and relaxed. Right. There's, you know, the, the people that naturally played that way. Um, and I know there's not probably tons of footage, but there is a McEnroe, but McEnroe was that way. McEnroe had very loosey goosey strokes, but his feet were busy. It, frankly, McEnroe in his early age kind of looked out of shape, right? That was like the rap on him. It's like, he's not even in shape. He got, he fixed that later in his career. But the other one you guys know is, is uh, Paul Anacom. Now he's, you know, he, made it pretty damn far a lot of tournaments. So I'm not saying there's tons of footage of him, but I remember specifically thinking that of him. He was really good and his strokes were nice and calm. They weren't slappy. You know, they, they weren't flicky. He just had this smoothness to him. And not that that's for everybody, right? Like Rafa doesn't play that way. Rafa's got a more violent game, violent swings. Federer has a more fluid swing. That's if Rafa would try to replicate Federer, it wouldn't be Rafa and vice versa. No. So, but most people don't need all that violent stroke. Um, but I say that because it's in the range of acceptability. If I was coaching Rafa, I would probably notice pretty on, okay, this kid, this is all about it, like everything he does. Rafa puts city miles on his body. Fed puts highway miles on his body. Yep. You want to put highway miles on your body uh, whenever possible. And some people, it's just not possible, you know, because of the way they're Rafa freaking runs out of the tunnel. I mean, the guy, he does, his dial is kind of broken over here on, on high, mm -hmm. but it works for him. Well, th thank you. That was great. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed this session of the podcast with Jorge Capistani. And thanks again, Jorge, for all your knowledge and insight into the game. And also for the great questions from the individuals um, in this episode. So with that, I uh, would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that by going to 
tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts with an S at the end. Or just, you know, searching for the Tennis Files podcast in your favorite app of choice that you uh, use to listen to the show. Also want to leave you with a quote, as I often do at the end of pretty much every show. And this one is by Pablo Picasso. And Pablo said, action is the foundational key to all success. It truly is. uh, If you just listen to these episodes and, and the summits and other coaches, but you don't take any actions and you just you're sitting on the couch um, just thinking about things for a long time then nothing will really happen for you so you need to really go out there and put it into practice you know gradually and in the right environment and then you will experience you know little wins that turn into great successes over time all right really hope that you enjoyed that episode i look forward to bringing you some more great ones. Uh, we have one with Peter Freeman, my uh, very good friend and coach from Crunch Time Coaching, coming up very soon. So I'm really looking forward to that one. And with that, I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. This is Mirabhan Aranchad signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.